0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series on the book of Job called Where Were You? For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. Well, I tell you what, I my name is Mike, I'm one of the guys on staff here and, and the Two previous places I've lived is Chicago and then Connecticut. And Chicago is 12 degrees this morning and Connecticut was minus six. And I I never thought I would say this, but February is my new favorite month. I love it. Not only is it 81 degrees in San Antonio today, but I get to text all my friends in Connecticut and and ask what they're up to. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and we we just have loved being here and getting to know the city. And and I love being able to be outside in February with my girls. And the other day I was at a park with them and just enjoying them and watching them and thinking, man, if I was still in Connecticut, we'd be inside going crazy with cabin fever. And now I'm just loving on my kiddos out, outside. And, and I was looking at them. And, and I don't know if, you know, you're a parent this morning. You have a moment sometimes when you just look at your kids and you just feel the weight of, fatherhood or motherhood and you just look at them and think man like this is a this is awesome but it's a huge responsibility and I had that moment this week and was just reminded of the weight of of stewarding and shepherding and leading and guiding my children and and there's a tremendous responsibility with that and you have wonderful moments and you have difficult moments and you have to figure out how to navigate those with your kids and I was reminded of a time where uh, our daughter was complaining of some symptoms, and Ariel and I had noticed some patterns of what was going on. her oldest daughter, Karis, and, and so uh, she was complaining. We, we were kind of curious that something could be actually seriously wrong with her. And so we called the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, that's actually cause for concern. Why don't you, you know, go get her blood tested? And this is at a time when Ariel had just uh, delivered our, our little girl, uh, our, other, our second one. And so um, she was with the baby, and I was going to take Karis to go get this blood work done. And I thought, okay, this is going to be fun with a two-year-old going to get her blood drawn. But you know what? We're going to do it. And it was a fasting blood sugar. So she couldn't eat or drink for 12 hours. And so um, she went to bed at night. And then we woke her up in the morning, and I threw her in the van. And, and we uh, went straight to this lab. And hopefully it was just going to be you know, in and out sort of a deal. Um, but I walked in and there were 12 people ahead of us, and there was one guy that was working who was doing the records and he was answering phones and he was the one who was uh, taking blood and so uh, it took about an hour and a half and she's looking at me and she's like, "Daddy, I'm hungry. Daddy, can I can I have a snack?" Daddy, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water, please? And I'm like, oh, baby, no, 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 no. You're okay. You're going to be okay, honey. It's, it's going to be fine. Don't, you know, don't worry. Daddy's going to give you breakfast after this. We've got to get this test done. And she's like, you know, running around this room looking at me like, Daddy. And she was a champ. She was great. But she was wondering, like, why, why can't I have anything to eat or drink? It just didn't make sense to her. And so finally they called us, and we go back into the room. And, <clears throat> and uh, the guy looks at me, and then he looks at Karis, and he looks at me again and says, hey, I just have to tell you, I'm not very good with kids Thought, oh, what am I going to do? I mean, we're here, we're going to go for it. So he, I, she sits in my lap and, and the guy puts a tourniquet on her and, and then, you know, he taps her vein and then he takes the needle and he holds it up kind of right in front of her face. And I'm like, oh gee, this guy's really not good with kids. And he just pushes it in her arm and totally misses her vein. And she looks at me and she starts to cry and she, she's, daddy, daddy, what's going on? Daddy, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And And then, and then he takes it out and And looks, and he's like, oh, okay. And he does it again, and he misses. And then she starts screaming, and she's like, Daddy, he's hurting me! Daddy, why is this happening? And she's crying, and she's sobbing, and she's looking at me, and as brutal as it was for her, I tell you what, I'm pretty sure it was worse for me because I'm sitting there, and I'm like, baby girl, I, I promise you, I'm, I'm not trying to torture you here. And he keeps doing it, and then he goes into her other arm, and he misses. And in the whole thing, we had to go end up seeing a pediatric phlebotomist, and this, so this whole thing was a complete disaster. And she's looking at me as this is happening, and she's like, Daddy, you're supposed to be the daddy that loves me? You're supposed to be the daddy that cares about me? You, Daddy, we watch VeggieTales together. Daddy, you take me on bike rides. Daddy, you give me snacks. Daddy, you tuck me in at night and you sing me lullabies and we pray together. Daddy, what is going on? Why are you letting this happen to me? And I was so traumatized and I figured I need to talk to somebody. So I figured I'm not calling Mama Bear. I'm not doing that. So I'm going to call Grandma instead. So I called Grandma and I'm talking to her on the phone and And she says, Mike, I'm so sorry that happened, but wow, what a picture. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, you know, isn't that the way we are with God? Isn't that the way we are with God that sometimes things are happening and we're getting jabbed and we're getting poked and prodded, and we're like, God, why is this happening? God, don't you love us? God, you're the God that loves us and you sent Jesus and you're kind and you're gracious, but I'm getting nailed over here and where are you? What is going on? And that stopped me in my tracks because that is so true. And I do that all the time. And I'm sure this morning you can re- resonate with that and feel that, that there are things going on in your life that you're like, God, you try to reconcile God's goodness and his love and his kindness with what your, our circumstances are. And sometimes it's difficult. And if you've been with us over the past month, we've been in the book of Job, and we're wrapping that up today. But at the beginning of this book of Job, we see this righteous man, Job. And he's considered righteous in the eyes of God and men. Job is a man who has a lot of great things. He has a wonderful family. He's got a big family. He's got tons and tons of wealth. And so Satan comes to God and says, God, God you know, people are only righteous and they only do good things because of the blessings that they have. And God says, "If you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, I bet you if I take it away from him, He's going to curse you. And God says, no, no, he won't, and, but go ahead. And so God gives Satan permission to take this stuff away from Job. And what we see is now this man, Job, enter into a period of suffering. When we say the word suffering, sometimes we bring presuppositions to what that word actually means. But this man entered into suffering that's so bad. And so awful and so horrible that we don't even have a compartment or a frame of reference for it. And that's not to trivialize what we've gone through in some of our circumstances. But this man, it was crazy. He lost all of his wealth; everything was taken from him in an instant. And then he got word that all of his children had been killed in a horrible accident. And then he finds out that his wife comes to him and says, "You know what? Just Job, just curse God and die." So his marriage turned sour. And then his health starts to deteriorate and he's, he's inflicted with wounds and from the, the bottom, the soles of his feet to the top of his head, he's covered in sores. And so what we see at the beginning of the book of Job is this man laying in a pile of ashes and he starts to take pottery and he just starts to scrape himself. And this suffering is so bad, so miserable, so horrible that we, don't even, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around that. And so what ensues in the book of Job Or his friends come, and they sit with him, and they're silent for a week, and they're just present with him. And and they're just sitting there trying, and then they start this dialogue with Job, and they try to figure out, why is this happening? Why is this happening? There must be something we can figure out. We got to figure this out. Let's get to the bottom of why this is happening. And so his friends reach the conclusion that this is happening to Job because he did something wrong. There's got to be sin in his life. There's got to be sin in his life. And so we talked about the theme, wickedness equals punishment. Wickedness equals punishment. If you're wicked, if you're doing bad things, you're going to be punished. And righteousness equals blessing. If you do good things, then you're going to be blessed. And so they begin to say things to Job like, Job, you know what? You obviously have horrible sin in your life. Job, you've neglected orphans. Job, you've neglected widows. Job, you have have manipulated people. They they obviously didn't have the spiritual gift of encouragement, right? They totally like, you know, Job is already desperate and they just start hacking at him. And Justin talked a lot about this theme and did an excellent job talking about it and, and, and the way that that still manifests itself today in what's called the prosperity gospel. And I, I really can't stand that phrase because that's really no gospel at all, but the prosperity gospel that people believe that if you do good things, God's going to bless you. And if you've got something wrong with you, or they're suffering, you got sin in your life. And man, if you, you're stricken with some health problem, man, it's because there's, there's sin. And some people still teach that today, and that is a disgrace, and, and that is horrible, and Justin apologized for that and, and did a great job talking about that. And so that was our first theme that we talked about, and then we shifted into the second theme in the book of Job that's so prevalent. I am suffering, and therefore God is silent. Because I'm suffering, God is silent. And Job begins to say things like, uh, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I can't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him, and when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. And then, after a while of trying to figure out why is this happening to me, Job shifts into accusations against God, and he says, "God, you have cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes." I cry to you for help, and you don't answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. And he began to say things like, God's anger burns against me. He's counting me among his enemies. Job had gotten to a place where he was adamantly defending himself before God, and his pride started to get in the way and started to creep in, and he started to become self-righteous, and and he started to become self-absorbed. And Job's circumstances, and this is key for us this morning, Job's circumstances had caused him to to doubt the truth that he once knew. Job allowed his circumstances to affect the way he viewed God. And four times in the book of Job, he asks God directly, God, answer me. God, tell me, why is this happening? God, either accuse me of my sin or God, vindicate me. But he never heard the words, not guilty. And finally... Finally, finally, after a long time of waiting and speculating and theorizing and his friends talking, finally God speaks. And we talked about it last week, that God comes to Job, not in this gentle rain cloud, not in a light breeze, but God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, essentially a tornado. The voice of God comes to Job and he says, hey, Job, You know, this whole time, Job, you've said, God, where are you? God, where were you when this is happening? And now God says, Job, where were you? Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Job, where were you when I put everything into motion? You know, this is a pretty intense scene. And sometimes, you know, when I read through the Bible, I like to just imagine what would it be like to be there? Man, it would be awesome to be a fly on the wall. I certainly wouldn't want to be Job in that moment, not going to lie. But, but I'd like to have seen that. I mean, the intensity of this scene where God comes to him and, and begins to question him. And he's just sitting there, and he's like, wow. Oh. And he's just caught up in, in the might and the majesty and the supremacy of God. And God goes on for four chapters just pouring this out on Job. And in his response to Job, God does not talk about Job's circumstances. God does not talk about, Job, there's, there's issues in your life, you know, you got sin issues in your life. He doesn't, he doesn't um, make any allegations against Job. He doesn't get caught up in explaining what happened. Job was never taken into the courtroom to see why this was happening. But instead, God responds with his own list of questions. And he uses these questions as a means to get Job to the truth that he needs to be confronted with. God wants his nature to make make a statement about how transcendent, how different, how other he is, and how much bigger and greater he is than Job could ever even imagine. And God is trying to get Job into a place where he stands in reverence and awe of him. God says, Job, you have no idea how big I am. You have no clue how powerful and how strong I am, and you're trying to wrap your mind around something that you can't even figure out. God shows Job that he needs to hand this entire matter of what's been happening over to him, trusting that God alone can provide for him. And, and he's telling Job that he needs to just have faith without a complaining spirit. But then we see this tenderness as God draws, draws Job away from his pain. This is a man who's just in this tense, intense suffering and we see that God takes him out of that pain, and into his majesty, and into his presence. And Job is no longer focused on his circumstances or on his own pain, but now he's in the presence of the supreme and almighty God. Job no longer knows about God, but now he sees God, and he experiences God. And what we need to make a distinction about this morning, we're going to talk about big time, is that knowing about God and really knowing God are two totally different things. Knowing about God and knowing God are two totally different things, and they cannot be confused. You can know a lot about some, someone without truly knowing them. Let's think of an example. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you know Tim Duncan? Some of you are going to get excited. You're like, dude, yeah, I love, I love Timmy. Man, the big fundamental. We know, I know Tim Duncan, absolutely. For those of you who are like, who's Tim Duncan? Um, First of all, there is a basketball team in San Antonio called the Spurs. And Tim Duncan is the 6'11 dude who plays center for the Spurs. And he was drafted uh, in 1997 with the first pick in the overall draft, or, uh, in the NBA draft. And he and David Robinson, what was their nickname? Anybody know? The Twin Towers, right? And so he came to San Antonio, and he has been a five-time NBA um or He's won five NBA championship rings. He's been a two-time M- NBA MVP. He's got numerous all-stars, all-star games. And if you really know a lot about Tim Duncan, you may know he went to Wake Forest. He's from the Virgin Islands. And if you're a creepy stalker, you know he's born on April 25th, 1976. And um, that he was actually a swimmer and was a nationally ranked swimmer in the United States at the age of 13. And so we can have a lot of facts about Tim Duncan, and we can know a lot about who Tim Duncan is, but if I say, hey, what's Tim Duncan's greatest fear? What is he really afraid of? What, what is Tim Duncan, you know, how is he doing as a man? What's going on in his soul? You like, oh, uh, that's weird. I don't really know. I just see him on TV, and maybe you've even sh- shaken his hand, and maybe you've got, gotten to see him up close, but you don't really know Tim Duncan. But you know what? We do the exact same thing with God. A lot of churches today are talking about a lot of truth from God's word. And if we were to even say, hey, listen, I want you guys to shout out truths about God's word this morning. Or about God this morning from his word. We could do that. We could use these big words like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. And we could start characterizing God and begin to construct this theology and understanding of who God is. And we know a lot about God, but if I say, hey, how many of you have a personal relationship with God where you are confident that you know the living God, that you've experienced him, and you've seen him, and you know him? How many of you really honestly can say that this morning? Because there's a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. And after hearing God's response, Job was absolutely leveled. And this is the, the, the response that he says this morning. And if you, you got your Bibles, turned to Job chapter 42. Job 42, 1 through 6. <coughs> then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my eye, but now my eye Seize you, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. God's response to Job is so powerful that it leaves Job completely overwhelmed with the majesty, the awesomeness and supremacy of God, and as Justin talked about last week, the primary issue in the book of Job. The primary issue in the book of Job is theological. Developing an understanding of who God is. And here we see that when we do that, when we understand who God is, when we experience him, when we see him, it elicits a great response in us this morning and and the first thing we see is when we truly experience God, we acknowledge his supremacy. When we truly experience God, we acknowledge his supremacy. When Job was confronted with the majesty, the awesomeness, the supremacy and might of God, he immediately acknowledged by saying, I know you can do all things. I know no purpose of yours can be thwarted. When he saw God for who he is and he received this proper understanding of God, he threw up his hands and he said, whoa, God, you're able. God, I don't even know. I can't even understand this. God, you're so much bigger. You're so much greater and nothing can stand in your way, God. You can do everything and nothing of yours can be frustrated. You know what's so so cool about this? This is a cry of a man who is set free. He's no longer in bondage to his suffering and his brokenness. He'd gained knowledge of God and therefore knowledge of himself. And he saw God in his greatness and it immediately caused him to acknowledge how big he is. In his discourse to Job, God highlighted the importance of him being creator and sovereign over overall, and this left Job in awe of his supremacy, realizing God is so much bigger, and God is so much greater. And in his response back to God, Job twice utters, who's this that or, utters what God said back to him by saying, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things far too wonderful for me which I did not, for me which I did not know. And hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Job was put in his place, standing before this infinite God, realizing he was finite. Isaiah, a very famous chapter you may be familiar with, Isaiah 40, it says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is huge. He's big, he's awesome, he's supreme, and and Romans 1 tells us that God is so big and creation just declares who God is that we're made without excuse. When we see creation, we're immediately pointed to God and we are called to acknowledge his supremacy. And a lot of us, you know, on Sunday mornings, we gather and we talk about God a lot and even maybe you're in a community group and you get together and we talk about God a lot and we think we have him figured out. And we think we kind of know who God is, and, and we use these theological words and these terms and this jargon that we, we got a pretty good handle on God. And Justin alluded to it. We, we talk about putting God in a box, that we, we know Him and we've got Him figured out. And guess what? That's comfortable for us. We like that. Very few of us really like to be stretched and pushed in what we believe. And we get comfortable with this idea of God and, and think we really know him. And I'm guilty of it. I went to Bible college and then seminary. And, man, the seminarians, they are the chief of, of doing this. They, they come in and they think, you know, they use these huge words like soteriology, you know, and they use words like ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And they use these massive words and talk about, you know, all of these words to describe God's character and these words of doctrine and think that they sound intelligent and that we really understand God but when we stand before him we look at him and we're able to really truly experience him it blows our minds when we say god wait a minute i've uttered things i don't understand god you are so much bigger you're so much greater and you are supreme and we acknowledge and confess his supremacy and job had this expanded view of who god is and it caused him to acknowledge his supremacy has that happened with you where you've just become confronted with the majesty and the might of God, and you say, whoa, wait a minute. If it hasn't, I encourage you, go outside. Look around. Look at creation. You know, there's some beautiful state parks in Texas. Go drive around and look at these things and say, okay, wait a minute. Okay. All right. God, I'm a a grasshopper. God, you are so much bigger and so much greater. You designed and created all this. I'm a grasshopper. Okay. All right, God, you're supreme. Get it. We all need to do this and experience him and acknowledge his supremacy. But when Job developed this sense of God and saw him and experienced him, it also left him humbled in his presence. And that's our second point that we see is that when we experience God, we respond in humility. Job says, I'd heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I repent and dust and ashes." His piousness and self-righteousness were gone and that he was reduced to such humility, crushed beneath God's greatness. And what's so incredible about this is we talked about Job never got answers. He never knew why this happened. He didn't see the conversation between God and Satan. Maybe that would have encouraged Job when he'd have been able to make sense of it all. But instead, he, he was brought into God's presence, and, and he was ushered into God's presence, and he said, okay, well, wait a minute, God, you are so much greater, and it caused him to think a lot less about his circumstances, and it left him humbled. And I've heard a lot of different definitions of what humility is, but perhaps the greatest is that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but humility is thinking of yourself less. You think of yourself less or less often, that when we experience God and we we respond to his greatness, it leaves us not thinking as much about ourselves and our circumstances, and we're humbled. Job is a broken and changed man, and that's what happens when we really see God. Woe is me, or Isaiah says the same thing, woe is me, for I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, when he experiences Jesus and and sees Jesus' power, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It happened to the centurion when Jesus came to his house. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That we see God and our focus is drawn to him and not on ourselves and our circumstances. You know, this week has, has been a great reminder for me of this on a lot of levels. And it's just been an interesting week. Ariel and I got a call on Monday from our, our literally our best friends and the husband who had a wonderful job uh, got laid off and, and lost his job and it was just really devastating for their family, and and came out of nowhere, and they just got blindsided. And uh, some of our other friends called us, and they found out that they're never going to be able to have children on their own, and they're struggling with infertility. And then uh, that was really difficult to help them navigate through that. And uh, then on Friday, I was at the park with our girls, and I started seeing spots out of my left eye, and they gradually got worse, and so I said something to Ariel, and she said, hey, you need to go to the doctor, your vision is nothing to play around with, and so I go to the doctor on Friday, and, and um, he looks at the picture, and he says, oh, not good, you've got a hole in your retina, and it's caused your retina to detach, and you uh, have to have eye surgery." And so now, you know, I can't see out of my left eye and I'm trying to, you know, figure all this out. And it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Why is this happening? You know, we're about to buy a house and, you know, we just finally got a second vehicle and, you know, everything's starting to come together. Why is this happening? What in the world is going on? Why, you know, I can't see out of my left eye and I'm going to, you know, have this long recovery of having this eye surgery. And, you know, what is going on? You know, all of us have circumstances that happen. And, you know, I was talking to somebody this morning who said, you know, I I sent away, um, you know, a biopsy to Mayo Clinic this morning and, you know, this week and just waiting for results. You know, all of us have things that happen that have potential for us to just think, get caught up in our circumstances. But when we realize that there is this almighty, powerful, supreme God, our problems are no longer this big, they become this big. And our God is this big. And we look at our problem and say, detached retina? God, you know what? Yeah, this is annoying. It's an inconvenience. But I know you got a plan. I know this is part of your plan. And I'm okay. We're going to be okay. You know what? I lost my job. You know what, God? You never said the word oops. I'm going to be okay. And God, you're going to use this for your glory. And you're working for our good. And even when I can't see it, God, I acknowledge that. And that's what happened with Job. He comes into the presence of God, and he says, okay, God, whoa. Wait a minute, God. You know, I I know you can do all things. And he's reduced, he sees himself as he is, as this little tiny grasshopper. Has that happened to you this morning? Seriously, has that happened to you? Where you see yourself, and you see your place in this world, and it's not your world any longer. It becomes God's world. You say, God, okay, okay. I understand, God, I know you have a plan, I know that you're working, and we can find this incredible encouragement of being humbled before the majestic, almighty God. Job stands confessing God's supremacy, and then he's humbled before God, and, and that leads him to repentance. That he, he says, I despise myself, therefore I repent in dust and ashes. When we truly experience God, it moves us to repentance, Before Job saw God in this way, he had kind of elevated himself and he esteemed himself somewhat highly and wasn't hesitant to assert his righteousness. And he'd become proud and pious and self-righteous. But now he sees himself clearly and he responds in repentance. And what's so cool is Job doesn't just hopelessly repent like defeated but rather he acknowledges, he speaks of things he didn't understand, and he recants, and he realizes his place in this world is a mortal human being. And the word repentance literally means to stop and turn away from our sin. Stop in the direction you are heading and go the other way. Literally, you're walking in a direction, and you stop, and you turn, and you go the other way. That's what it means to repent. And this is a word that we throw around a lot. You've probably heard it, you know, repentance, and oh yeah, we repent. And but it's oftentimes overlooked in the church. And we see repentance as something that maybe we do upon salvation and that you know, we, or that we, re, we, we repent for the forgiveness of our sins. And it says that in Acts. But let us be very, very clear this morning that you do nothing to be saved. You can do nothing to be saved. The Bible says only by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves this is a gift from God, not by works. When you experience salvation and you receive this gift from God, it is unconditional, no strings attached. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And, and it's, it, it, you can't do anything uh, to, to merit this salvation. It, it is a gift from God alone, Period. When we receive salvation, however, there's going to be fruit of that, and we're given the Holy Spirit who works in our life to make us holy. That, that, that word, the big word, is called sanctification, that we're made holy like Jesus, that we become holy, and as part of our sanctification journey, God's Holy Spirit produces uh, in us this desire to get that sin out of our life, and the Holy Spirit pushes this sin out of our life when we turn away from our sin, and that produces this repentance in us. And when Job encountered the majesty of God, he said, "Whoa! No sin can be present in in, in the presence of God. No sin. There's no room for sin in the presence of God. And so, therefore, I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to turn from my bad theology, turn from my misunderstanding of God, and I'm going to repent and turn to see God. And this is something that is for all of us. All of us need to repent." Each and every day, this is something that needs to be part of our lifestyle as believers, that we turn from our sin and say, okay, God, we've experienced you, we see you, we know you, and therefore there's no room for sin in my life. And this isn't about legalism. It's not about not doing things and, or doing other things and a list of do's and don'ts, but rather it's saying, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going to be open to you getting this sin out of my life. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Justin's going to come up and lead us in a time to to really repent. But repentance happens when we encounter God. When we see Jesus Christ, when we experience him, when we experience his majesty, we're led to repentance. The Apostle Paul says, Lord, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. This isn't something that, you know, God is this just that we stand in awe and reverence and fear of God and we're just so shaken. Yes, that is true. And there's a huge part of being in awe and reverence of the majesty splendor of God, but there's also this compassion and this tenderness and this love of God that we have that moves us to turn away from our sin. And so what about you? Is there sin in your life this morning? The answer to that, yes, there is sin in your life this morning. There's sin in my life this morning. Maybe it's like Job where we think we've got God figured out and we need to turn away from that. Maybe there's other overt sins where it's, um, maybe there's dishonesty. Maybe there's lifestyle uh, issues of of lying. Maybe there's, you know, manipulating. Maybe, you know, the the way that you're, you're, you're performing your work is not ethical. Maybe there's sexual sin in your life. But there's no room for sin in the presence of God. And when we encounter and experience God, we turn away from our sin. Ask that God would convict you of your sin and cause you to turn away from it. And if we're not broken over our sin, and if our sin doesn't just produce in us this brokenness where we say, okay, God, I repent, I'm going to turn from it because you're so awesome and so majestic, that's a sign that we have not experienced God. And so when we experience him, we're moved to repentance. This is something that needs to be talked about, needs to be practiced in our community groups where we encourage each other. Hey, let's, let's repent from our sin and embrace Jesus and embrace the gospel and turn away from, from the sin that's in our lives. And like I said, we're going to have a dedicated time of that as a church in a few moments. But the fourth and final truth we see from this text this morning is that when we truly experience God, we immediately recognize our need for a Savior. When we truly experience God, we recognize our need for a savior, Job was this broken man standing before this perfect and holy God, and he confessed earlier in the book, "I know that my redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another." And then later on in this chapter, in verse forty, in chapter forty-two, and I encourage you to read through that later, but. God turns to Job's friends, and we see this truth about how we need a Savior because God looks at Job's friends and basically says, hey, your theology is terrible. You you have no understanding. You spoke of things you did not know. You caused some serious damage to Job, and therefore you need to be punished. But I'm not going to punish you. There's going to be a sacrifice on your behalf, and I'm going to have my servant Job pray for you. And I'm going to answer his prayer. And I'm not going to deal with you according to your folly because Job is going to pray for you and go on your behalf. And we see this beautiful picture of an intercessor saving them from the penalty of their sins. And you know what, friends? That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. That God looks at me and he says, yeah, Michael, you're a broken sinner and you're before a holy God and if you're here this morning, I don't know what you believe and that's what's beautiful. I mean, don't think for a second that everybody who walks into church on a Sunday morning, you know, really truly embraces and believes the gospel and you know what, if you're here this morning and you're just trying to check things out, awesome. We are so glad you're here but I guarantee you, there's nobody in this room who would honestly think they've never done anything wrong all of us admit there's been something. Some think, you know, recognize we've done, done more things wrong than others, but, but all of us would say, hey, I've, I've messed up. I've done something wrong. I'm imperfect. And if you acknowledge the truth that God's holy and perfect, guess what? You have to account for that. You have to account for the fact that there is this perfect and holy, awesome, majestic God, and you're not perfect. And what are you going to do? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That there is a punishment that we deserve. And that that I deserve to go to hell. And you deserve to go to hell because of of what you've done. But the truth is that when we experience God and we see him, we acknowledge our need for an intercessor and we have that intercessor. Jesus Christ who says, I'm going to stand in the gap just like Job did for his friends. I'm going to stand in the gap and I'm going to pray for them and intercede for them. And I'm going to give my life. So that they can be reconciled and restored and made right with God. And when we experience God, we recognize our need for our Savior. And we have that Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. At the end of the book, we see um, that Job is a man who's satisfied. And he's not satisfied because all of his questions have been answered, he's not satisfied because God has said Job's not guilty. He isn't satisfied be, um, because um, of his circumstances, but he's satisfied because he's encountered and experienced the living God, and now he knows God, and he's experienced him, and he's seen him. If you read the conclusion of the book, God goes on to restore Job, and he gives Job twice as much as he had before. He gets kids, and uh, you know, he, gets, uh, he has 10 more children, and, and Job experiences this blessing. But even the word restored is a word I have a little bit of difficulty with because Job never got his kids back. Job, the the suffering that Job went through was still very real. It didn't in any way uh, erase what had happened to Job. But Job isn't satisfied because he got things back. Job is satisfied because he knows and sees and experiences God, and that is enough. And when Job is in the presence of God, he's no longer focused on himself. And he acknowledges God's supremacy and he responds in humility and he's moved to repentance and he recognizes, hey, I need a savior. I know that I've got a redeemer. Is that you today? Is that me today? That we're standing in the presence of God and and we are a broken people who acknowledge his greatness. You know, and if I ask you this morning, hey, you know, as we talked about the whole Tim Duncan illustration, you know, "Do do you know a lot about God or do you really know God? And friends, the truth is that Jesus Christ came so that we could know God, that we could experience him, that we could taste him, that we could have this personal relationship with him. And in in the book of John, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, that Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, so that we can see him, that we can know him. And as Justin comes forward, I'm going to just close this in prayer. But the truth is, you know, as we, as we deal with this, this is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful story of a man who has this encounter with the living God, and it affects him. And you know what? The world does not need people that go to church. The world does not need to see churchgoers. The world needs to see people who've experienced and know God and they're satisfied and they're moved to this life of saying, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. His kindness leads me to repentance and I'm going to live this life sold out for the gospel and I'm going to love people with the love of Jesus. And I'm going to be generous as Jesus was generous towards me. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be a person of forgiveness because I've encountered the gospel. And so today we're just going to have a time where we are ushered into the majesty and splendor of God and that we respond by turning from our sin and embracing Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are the God who's creator and sovereign over all, yet you are a God who's personal, and you are a God that can be known, and you are a God who's revealed himself through Jesus. And Lord, we stand in awe of you this morning. And God, all of us have things in our lives that we're going through, things that are difficult. And we don't want to trivialize anything this morning, God, but Lord, when we look at you and how big and how awesome you are, we find not only encouragement from, in, in what we're dealing with, but we find satisfaction because of who you are. And I pray that all of us, that Stone Oak Bible Church would be a church that knows you, that we experience you, and that we live for your glory. And now as we take this time to deal with what's going on in our lives, I pray that we would take that seriously and that your spirit would be at work in us. In your name, amen.